Good morning. Let me pray for us. Lord, I sense my weakness. But, uh, Lord, I have great confidence in your word. Lord, your word promises us, just as rain comes down and waters the earth and gives fruit, so will your word accomplish what you purpose it. And so may it do that in this time. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, many of you, like, were like me this past week, uh, shook by the death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter and the seven others. Uh, it, it affected me in ways that I didn't really anticipate. I have a biblical theology to sort of deal with stuff like that. And it still affected me. Like it, it messed with me, shocked me, bothered me. It sort of, yeah, it shook me a bit. And I think even reading some of those, uh, accounts were sobering how people were dealing with his death. There's one in particular that stood out. There's a woman that went to the Staples Center just after uh, they'd learned of the helicopter crash. and She was videoing, uh, videoing the Staples Center, which is where the Lakers play their home game. Kobe Bryant was a basketball player that died. He was. They were at the, uh, uh, the stadium where he was, and there was this kind of silent vigil, people standing there. And the thing that was interesting is she was noting on the video as people were standing silent, they were remembering Kobe Bryant. They uh, they remembered, she noted in that time that just a few hours before, the Grammys were being celebrated. And so people were there with a lot laughter, those kinds of things, fancy outfits and the like. And she was noting just a stark contrast between the hours, between those that are just moments ago uh, celebrating, anticipating life and uh, those kinds of things. And just hours later, a man in the prime of his life died. And there's something about these unexpected deaths that I think sort of serve as kind of smelling salts to society, don't they? They kind of awaken us up. In particular, tragedies like this, I think the tragedy, this tragedy in particular, seem to thrust these smelling salts across a society that has increasingly grown cynical and polarized and even petty. Unexpected tragedies have a way of doing this, don't they? Having us to take stock of our lives, evaluate things, evaluate in particular who we are and where we're going. Who we are and where we're going. They have a way of doing that. And the passage this morning does exactly that. We look at this morning at the well-known parable of the soils, uh, wherein we have the opportunity to assess those questions in light of the teaching of Jesus Christ. Namely, those two questions of who am I and who am I becoming? And then even thirdly, how is it we can assess who we are and who we are becoming? Jesus will show us how we can do that. And so as we do that collectively together this morning, let's read his word and meditate in order that we might find out who we are and who we are becoming. Take a look there. We'll take a look at the first few verses and then we'll work our way through slowly. Verse Chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had, he, had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So here we find that uh, right here in the very first words, that soon after, that is soon after Jesus left that dinner party from uh, the self-righteous Pharisee and the rest of the Pharisees and the sinful woman that came to Jesus and was forgiven. Soon after he left that, we find that Jesus goes on a kind of preaching tour. He goes city to city, town to town. Village to village, evangelizing, preaching the word. It says there in the passage that he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, many of us are familiar with the teaching or the healing ministry of Christ, aren't we? Many of you are familiar with the sort of miraculous ministry of Christ. But I wonder if you've taken the time to notice that most of Jesus' ministry was teaching and preaching the word. 
That made up most of his ministry. In fact, he even says in Mark 1.38, he says, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Now, he's clearly doing this. He's clearly spending a lot of time preaching and teaching the word because Jesus understands the very thing that Paul would write about years later in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the words of Christ. And so, as we saw last week, faith is what makes us well. It's what has us to go in peace. And in reference to the importance of the word, Jesus would even go on to pray right at the end of his life in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. How is it we get sanctified? Your word is truth. And so Jesus knows that the spirit of God uses the word of God in order to make sons and daughters of God. And so Jesus spends most of his time preaching and teaching the word because that, friends, is what humanity needs the most. Preaching of the word. And therefore, if preaching of the word is critical to the ministry of Christ, therefore, that then assumes what do we need to have? We need to hear the word. We need to be hearing the word. And notice the repetition of that word in our passage today. From verse 1 down to 21, nine times the word hearing is used there. Nine times. You see it two times in verse 8, once in verse 10, also in verse 12, 13, 14, 15, verse 18, and verse 21. Hear the word. And by that word, by hearing that word, believing that word, Jesus is teaching us, that's where we find the good life. Peace. Joy. And so if we're going to know who we are and who we are becoming, we're going to have to begin by hearing the word. Hearing the word. And not only must we hear the word, critical to understand also is what Jesus says down in verse 18. Take a look at that. Take care then how you hear. It's not enough just to hear. Jesus says you have to take care how you hear. So in other words, you have to be hearing the word in the way in which Jesus intends for it to go out. And so I wonder even now in this moment, how's that going? Are you hearing? And are you taking care how you are hearing? Properly and regularly hearing the word of God, friends, is critical. It's critical. Let me just stop and think about it. I've asked a few people this week, what is the main interest of the New Testament authors? Or I should say, what's their chief concern for the churches, for their disciples? What's the main thing? When you think about those 27 books of the New Testament, what is the thing they're most concerned about? I think the answer is clearly one thing. It's the false teaching of the word. Time and time again, you see them concerned about that. Jesus says at the end, great commission, right? Uh, teach and make disciples, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And then those apostles go out and you think about all those, those New Testament epistles. Think about virtually every single one of them, if not all of those New Testament epistles are being written because they're concerned about some kind of false teaching going on in the life of the church. And so that's what we find to be the case. The teaching of the word, the hearing of the word is of critical importance if we're going to grow in Christ and know who we are in Christ and grow up into that. And so that's still true today. I wonder what you think about when you choose a church. Are you prioritizing this preaching ministry of the word and how it's being understood and taught? We can think about all the many false teachers there are that have taken the name of Christ or Christianity that have in their ministries provided confusion. I was watching a couple of them on TV yesterday. It was just awful. Confusing people, causing pain to people, difficulty to people as a result of false teaching. And so if you're, if you're not a Christian here this morning and you've wondered why there's all these denominations in Christianity and why there's these kind of crazy teachings, you've always wondered about that. Well, friend, I hope that you should, you should know, I want you to know that this reality was not lost on Christ or his apostles. Which is why Jesus spends three years investing in 12 guys to try to help them understand the truth. Which is why those apostles are carefully teaching their disciples. Which is why one of the apostles writes to one of his leaders, be careful to guard the good deposit that I've entrusted to you. That's why there's something that Jesus set up called restorative church discipline to correct those. And that's why we have so many books of the Bible. This Restoration Church is also why we put so much emphasis 
on preaching, on teaching, on singing, on praying the word. And this is why the beautiful thing about a Baptist church, wherein if I get this wrong, you can fire me. And you should if I'm falsely teaching the word. Guarding the good deposit. And so we need this constant recalibration of the word. Jesus is preaching it and teaching it. And we need this constantly to be recalibrated by this word. Because, think about it, we are hearing so many other words throughout the week. We're always hearing. But are we taking care of how we are hearing? And so we need to come once a week at the minimum to be recalibrated in the word of God. And so Christ, we see here, he's coming in preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's going from town to town, village to village, investing in his disciples. And so, friends, if we are going to know who we are and who we are becoming, we must regularly hear the word of God. And we must not only hear the word of God, we must also pay attention to how we're hearing it, how it's being taught. But now I want you to notice who it is that's responding to this word. Take a look at Jesus' traveling companions on this preaching tour. You'll notice there we got the 12 disciples. And that, those 12 disciples, they're an interesting mix, aren't they? We've, we've talked about them already. Those 12 disciples are a mix of kind of ragtag guys, right? You've got fishermen, you've got tax collectors, you've got a political zealot in there, not to mention some others. Not exactly the kinds of people you would think that God would build the kingdom of God upon. And yet these are the ones that God is using. Then we've got some women who have been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. We've got one named Mary called Magdalene. We can imagine her going from town to town. The little kids looking at her going, I think that's the one that had the seven demons cast out of her. You know. We've got this gal, Joanna, the wife of the king, his chief of staff. Right? The chief of staff's wife is walking around with Jesus, traveling with him. Some gal named Susanna. I mean, when I picture this group, uh, maybe 30, 40 folks traveling with Jesus, going from town to town. When I picture this, the first thing that comes to mind is the crew of that movie that I really enjoyed called The Greatest Showman. Have you seen that movie? It's a great movie. It's a great movie. And, and I, I kind of picture that group. You know, you got the bearded lady. You got the tall guy. You got the short guy. You got the twins. All these just sort of random people. And the throngs love them and are following them. Watching them, entertained by them. It's a collection of strange folks, and yet they make the greatest show on the earth. And that's exactly what we see in these, in this group here. Jesus is on a preaching tour, going from town to town with a kind of circus cast, as it were. He's building his kingdom on the weak, on the poor, on the outcast, on the socially unacceptable. And one by one, they are changing the world. And did you notice there in verse 3, this ragtag crew was providing for Jesus financially and the traveling show out of their own means? Did you catch that? So here we have some of the first evidence of the church giving financially to the preaching of the word, to the ministry of the word, something we still do today. We just took up a, we just took up an offering. So if you're a visitor here thinking, all right, I'm bringing this out so we can get some more money. We've already taken up the offering. All right. So that's important to note. But nevertheless, that's we're doing that because we see that's always what the church has done. Supporting the preaching and the teaching of the word. Paul even writes this to one of his early elders, to Timothy. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads over the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. First Timothy 5. And so people were changed by the word of Christ. Therefore, out of their own means, they're giving of their finances so it can keep benefiting them and others that will come to hear the word. Well, this group makes it into one town after another. Large crowds are coming into here and to, uh, to hear and to understand the word. And then Jesus, as he begins to teach, he gives these parables. Sometimes he does these parables. That's one of his main teaching devices. A parable is a small story with one main point. It's not a small story with 17 points. It's a small story with one main point. And here we read of one of Jesus' more famous parables, the parable of the sword. Let's take a look at it. Verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town uh, after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path And was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up it withered away. 
because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I love what comes next in verse 9. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, and it goes on. See, now many of you are familiar with, not, not all of you are, but some of you are familiar with what this parable teaches. But imagine being there and hearing this for the first time. He just stopped. Did you see that in verse 8? He was done. He said the prayer, or said the parable, and he was done. Imagine hearing that without the explanation. Right? It, we can understand this sort of reference to the disciples. There's, we can imagine maybe Susanna or, or maybe Bartholomew or Magdalene coming up to Jesus going, right, so um, Jesus, like, we've been talking and we don't know what you mean. Like, what does this mean? Yeah. You're right. Strange. It's not exactly clear. So I've, he- I've heard, uh, so I've actually heard sort of pastors from stages say, we, we pastors need to preach more simply, which there's truth to that. We need, remember Jesus spoke in parables, right? So we need to do the same. Of course, people that say that don't actually take the time to understand why Jesus was speaking in parables. And we see it right there in verse 10. The reason why he's speaking in par- parables is to be unclear. Does that mess with some of y'all? Should. Why is Jesus, if the ministry, I just, I just spent seven minutes on the ministry of the word, right? Why is Jesus using the ministry of the word to be unclear? Take a look at verse 10. Let's make sure that I'm preaching the word correctly. Look at verse 10. To you, he's speaking to the disciples. To you, it has been given. You should underline that word. It has been given to know the secrets. A better translation of that word, by the way, I don't like that word secrets. The word is mystery. It's mysterion is the word. To know the mystery of the kingdom. To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, the disciples. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. All right, two things to address there. Let's go ahead and tackle that first one that I'm sure most all of you are wondering about. Why is Jesus teaching in a way that's unclear? Well, our answer is going to be, is going to take us back to Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10. That's the passage that Jesus is quoting in verse 10. He's quoting Isaiah 9, 6, 9 and 10. And I'm going to read it here in just a second, but the context of Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 is when Isaiah the prophet sees the throne room of God, the Lord of hosts, and he has his sins atoned for with the coal, and the Lord said, who shall we send to preach for us? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. This is what comes after that. Isaiah 6, I'm going to read from 9 to 12. And he said, God, go and say to the people, God speaking to Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I, Isaiah, said, how long, O Lord, which you see what he's getting. He's going, man, that's going to be a really tough ministry. Like he gets the difficulty of that. How long must I do that, O Lord? And he said, The Lord said back to him, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And on it goes. In other words, what he's referencing there, exile. God's people, exile. You keep preaching until this city is laid waste and God's people are gone because of their sinfulness. So you got to understand, guys, a little quick primer on the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the first 39 books of the Bible. This is before the coming of Christ. And there, Isaiah is a prophet to those people in that time. He's a prophet under the Old Covenant to God's people, Israel, ethnic Israel. Century after century has gone by, and God had been faithful to his faithless people. He had been slow to anger. He had been abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He had done exactly what he promised, but God's people weren't faithful. Century after century, time after time, no matter how good God had been to them, God's people just didn't believe. And in fact, what they would do is they would sort of show external religion. And then they would try to be like the world. That's basically the story of the Old Testament. And so the Lord had had it with him. And so he sent these prophets to preach to them, to call them to repentance. 
and then tell them about the coming judgment as a result of their unwillingness to turn from their sin and walk in obedience. And Isaiah's ministry was a ministry of preaching, of teaching the word. But it was a hard ministry. He had the difficult task of preaching judgment on a hypocritical people. And Jesus, friends, is conjuring up those same words to the same group of people some 700 years later who were acting in much the same way. And so, friends, the proper preaching of the word of God does not just one thing. It does two things at the same time. It blesses those that long to hear it, to understand it, and live in light of it. And it hardens those that don't want to do it. Life to some, the word of God is life to some and death to others. The same word. Praise God for that. Sometimes I can preach one sermon and it's heard numerous ways. Helps me understand that. Like the same sun that both melts and bakes, so the word of God melts and bakes. It melts repentant hearts who love God and hate their sin. We saw that from the sinful woman last week. Right? And it hardens hearts who loathe God and love their sin and do not want to walk in obedience, as we saw from Simon last week. And Jesus comes to a people to properly preach the word, but he is intentionally unclear to the masses by his teaching these parables so that in their hearing, they would be exposed for not hearing. In their seeing, they would be exposed as not seeing. The parables would remain a mystery to them and they would care less about finding it out. There would be some that would draw, be drawn out. But most would hear the mysterious parables and unlike the disciples, right? What are the, the disciples are our example in the word of God. They come to Jesus. I loved how we started the service this morning. Come to Jesus. They come to Jesus. Help me understand Jesus. But the masses were not interested in coming to Jesus to understand. The rest of them would sort of go, you know, what are these parables about? And the masses would sort of say, I don't know. And what's he going to do another one of those miracles, Right? I'm hungry. Maybe he's going to give us some more food. Did you hear about that? He like, gave food to 5,000 last week. Maybe he'll do that today. Let's watch that. That's what they're interested in. Or they might be asking, you know, when's, you know, he's like the king. So when's he going to kind of overcome all these Romans so we Israelites can be like the center of the world again? That was their main interest. Or remember that passage that we saw a couple weeks ago, uh, uh, chapter 7, 31 to 32. Y'all remember that one? Jesus said, to what shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. In other words, Jesus was calling out the same generation for doing what they had always done. What our generation still does today. You come to church and say, entertain me, Jesus. Entertain me, pastor. Entertain me, church. Do something mysterious. Do something fun and exciting. Tickle my ears. Or, you know, just preach the kind of stuff that's just sort of has utility for my life. I don't need sin, righteousness, repentance, obedience, all that stuff. Man, I need to, I need to know how to do my job better, whatever, which is not wrong in and of itself. In other words, there's this penchant down in the heart that says, I just want to use you, Jesus, to help my life be better for me. There's no interest in king and kingdom, repentance, righteousness, obedience. No interest in that. All those things are sort of in place so as to just kind of have utility for me. Entertain me. These kinds of words. And Jesus is saying here, if there's no interest in Christ for Christ's obedience in order to make much of Jesus... If that describes you, friend, then it's like the word that's going out that causes your heart. Like the sun goes out to bake, so it bakes your heart. And I'm mindful. I've been so burdened by preaching this sermon this week because I don't want those that are in Christ to walk away from this sermon scared to death. But there are people in this room. This is a big enough room. You take a look around. There's not many seats left in this room. We need some more seats in here. We'll get, we're working on it. But listen. Some of you, there's enough people in this room where these four soils, I'm about to walk through all four of them, all four of you in this room, and let it not be said of this church that we did not warn you. See, this room is full of all kinds of people from different walks of life. Some of you grew up in legalistic Christian homes. 
Some of you grew up in healthy, grace-filled, gospel-loving homes. Some of you uh, grew up in homes where they never even talked about God. Some of you grew up in pragmatic homes. Some of you have, have experiences, good experiences with the church. Some of you have had terrible experiences with the church. Some of you have had good pastors that loved you, listened to you, wept with you, laughed with you. Some of you have had terrible pastors that abused you, that used you. Some of you have had no pastor at all, no church at all, because you haven't taken more than 10, 20, 30 minutes to even think about the gospel. All kinds of people in this room from different walks of life. And all of us are bringing those experiences into this moment, such that when the pastor stands up to preach, and when you hear the words, like I've been saying, about judgment, some of you just turn me off. And you just say, typical. Another pastor talking about judgment. Some of you never even turn me on. Because you're like, Bible, seriously, Bible, come on. You believe that stuff? Like flood the world, man rose from the dead, axe heads floating, come on. Others of you woke up this morning looking to hear the word. You were excited. You wanted to be reoriented by the truth. But friends, you should know that if you have little time or attention to the preaching and the teaching of God's word, or you only want to hear certain kinds of preaching and teaching of God's word, then listen, take care how you listen. It's possible this sermon could be used to bake instead of melt. One might even argue that Jesus is a kind of prophet of the prophets of old. He's in line with him. He's the kind of prophet that most of his teaching ministry is to call people to repentance. Judgment. And so if that's you, friend, if you have the heart that's sort of inclined towards hating this kind of stuff, the proper teaching of the ministry of the word, whatever that is, if that describes you, then friend, you should know it's not me. It's not Jesus. It's not the Bible that's not having its effect. It's two things that Jesus explains in the first soil. Take a look down there, verse 11 and 12. There we get the clarity. He explains it. Here he is. Now he's explaining. Remember, this is not the masses now. He's only speaking to his disciples. The seed is the word of God. Exactly what I said before. We need to hear the word of God. The seed is the word of God. Four different signs of soils. Here's the first one. The, the ones along the path are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. First thing Jesus says there is an unbelieving heart never receives the word of God because Satan takes it away. Now, real quick, guys, we should be mindful of the fact that Jesus, who had an undeniable ministry, you cannot deny the uh, undeniable ministry of the historic person of Jesus Christ, he readily and openly uh, confesses that there is a guy named Satan. It's not some strange sort of thing that religious folks made up so as to control your behavior. Jesus knew that there was a spiritual battle for our hearts every day. He knew that Satan and his minions are out to steal the proper teaching of the word away. They love the false teaching of it, but they're out to steal the, the proper teaching of the word away from hearts so that the people will not see Christ, submit to Christ, love Christ, follow Christ. Guys, there is a battle and most people lose it because they're not hearing the word. And then secondly, they're not paying attention to how they hear the word. As a result, what Satan then steals the life giving joy of the word and people become all kinds of people that they would never thought of they would have been. But the second thing to note here about that passage is it's not quite in that passage, but we find it in other places of scripture. It's not just Satan that takes away the word. Right? Scripture teaches us in other places like Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that apart from the free grace of Christ, we don't want the word in the first place. It's one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons, by the way, that most people don't want to follow Jesus. They don't necessarily say this consciously, but the idea is I don't want to submit my life. I want to be king. And that comes from ourselves, our own sinful hearts. We don't make it a priority to hear in the first place because at the end of the day, we don't really want to follow Jesus unless he sort of suits my already preconceived notions. We're happy to have Satan take it away. We, we don't really care because we don't want to, we, we just want to kind of keep flowing down the free flowing waters of society. As Jesus said in his sermon back in uh, chapter 6 verses 24 to 26, we want to be rich, full, laughing, and well thought of by all. 
As a result, we don't humble ourselves to receive the life-giving fruit of the word of God. Therefore, the Lord Jesus issues his present passive judgment. Today, now, today, 2020, America and all over the world. You can read about that in Romans 1. Go back and read it today. God's judgment on people that don't want to hear the word. Satan's taken away or they don't want to have it. His judgment is letting you do whatever it is you want to do. That's his judgment. Just take it. Just do whatever it is you want to do. Romans 1 talks about this handing over. Just handing them over to the desires of their heart. That's his judgment. He gives what the natural heart wants deep down. A life away from him. And you might thrive in the world for a time. You might like it. Right? The book of Proverbs talks about the fact that stolen bread tastes sweet. But it eventually kills us. Because here's the reality, guys. Just as we learned from Kobe Bryant. No matter what your age is, how much resources you have, you're going to die. I'm going to die. I might die today. You might die today. And in that moment, you'll meet your maker. I, I walked in the, the night we had a members meeting last week. I walked in. And there's a doorman that I, I know. And I walked to him and he, he said, did you hear about how, uh, uh, Kobe Bryant dying? And I said, yeah, it's terrible. He said, wow. And he was talking about a shock. And I, and I told him, I mentioned his name. I said, Man, that reminds us, we we got to be prepared to meet our maker. And I asked him, I said, are you ready to meet your maker? He said, yeah, I had a Bible in my hand, came from a members meeting. I said, man, are you, do you know Christ? You might meet him today. Death comes, and so who are we? And who are we becoming? According to Jesus, one way is to receive the judgment of God by your finding the word of God dull. Let me be clear about something. There's times I find the word of God dull. Preachers are not supposed to say that, but let's just be honest, right? There's times in which it's dull. I, everybody gets stuck in Leviticus. I get stuck in numbers, right? But here's the thing. Over the corpus of your life, do you know you need it? Do you know you want it? We'll get into that later. If you don't have ears to hear, eyes to see, that's who you are. That's who you're becoming under his judgment. There's a second kind of person, though. The first soil is the path. The word goes out. Satan takes it away. And by the way, did you notice in verse 12, you get Jesus' definition of how salvation works? It's right there, clear as day. Verse 12. Jesus says there in, in verse 12 that the word goes out. There it is, the first part. It doesn't just go to the mind. It goes to the heart and it is believed. There's Jesus' salvation. Again, sometimes scholars say that Paul and Jesus have two different gospels. There it is right there, same gospel. Anyway. Second soil, verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Now, if you've, if you've followed Christ long enough, you've seen this person. You've watched this numerous times. More than you'd like to count. We can kind of imagine someone like this. You know, they grew up in the church. Their parents are Christians. They took them to church. And, you know, maybe at the age of 7, 8, 9, 10, they trusted Jesus. Because at the camp, the youth pastor said, you want to go to heaven, not to hell. Yeah, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. And they and they kind of trust. And then they get baptized 11 or 12 or 13 or whatever. And then they kind of grow up. They're in the church. That's where their friend group is, right? So all their friends are church friends. And these are good things, by the way. But nevertheless, this sort of could happen. And so they kind of follow along with their friends. And then they go off to college. And, and they kind of, you know, they kind of get a little rough in college. And then after college, they, they, they get married. And then when they get married, they get cancer. And then they know they're going to die. Or their, they, their spouse gets cancer and they die. Or they get a miscarriage. Or some natural disaster happens. and It just shakes them. Or, or who knows what else. Some tragedy comes upon them. And they just walk away. From Jesus. Maybe you get a. Your life doesn't turn out where you thought. You don't even ever get married. You don't get the job you want. You get fired from the job that you want. Whatever it is. Jesus calls it a testing. Testing. That word there. Also could be translated temptation. It's a temptation. Just as we saw Jesus back in the desert. When Satan tempted him. Just as Eve was tempted in the garden. When Satan took to, spoke to Eve and says, look at this shiny fig, eat of it. Reject God and his commands and be like him. Eat of it. 
And see, the trial and the temptation, they serve as refiner's fire. It exposes the heart that was there all along. He reveals that the joyful reception never actually made it down to the heart. Because those trials, those temptations prove too strong. And the person walks away from Jesus. I can't think of a passage that explains this more clearly than in 1 John 2, 18 to 19. Where John, the Apostle John says, Children, it is the last hour and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So he's not talking about the Antichrist. It's like those opposed to Christ. Antichrist. So many Antichrists have come. Those opposed to Christ have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They went out. The anti, those opposed to Christ, they went out from us. Who's us? The church. Christians. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. Why? That it might become plain that they are all not of us. They're not born of God. They left the joy because life got too hot. And their going out revealed that they were never in. Now, friends, let's be clear about this. It's easy to sympathize with these people, isn't it? I've had this happen in the life of our church. You know, this is, this is how common this is in the history of our church. Ten years in our church, we've had more people rejecting the faith than we've had to discipline people. And one in particular that I can remember that we walked with, loved with, wept with, prayed with. Unexpectedly, her husband died. And we walked with her, we wept with her. We were with her for months and months. We did a memorial service for her. And she just stopped showing up to church. And we were calling her, texting her. She wasn't responding. We went and uh, we met her at her home. And we told, pulled out this passage right here. And we just started reading through it. We just asked us, well, where, where, where are you at? And the second she heard this, she goes, that's me right there. What do you say in that moment? Well, get over it. No. It's hard. I've lost my dad unexpectedly. I know how painful this is. You don't just throw cliches out and just say, yeah, look to Jesus, you'll get through it. No. No. It's painful. We'd invested in her for years, but her husband's death was too much. We can understand it. But friends, the Lord never promised that it would be easy. God has been brutally honest with us from the beginning. If we had ears to hear it, it's right here in this book. Just think about the long line of saints from of old. God puts up front and center. Abraham promised to be the father of many nations. Decade after decade goes by, not even a single child. In a society that would define blessing by children. Think of Moses, a guy who pastored God's grumbling people for decades. Never gets to go in. Think of David, the greatest king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, chased down by his own son to be killed. If you've read the Psalms, you see time and again how often David is confessing struggle and pain and difficulty. Job, a faithful man, permitted to lose it all. Every single one of the uh, the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, Micah, so on, none of them welcomed by God. The disciples... Die horrible deaths, tradition tells us. But Paul is regularly persecuted all the time. Why? For making disciples and planting churches. Peter, tradition tells us, is crucified upside down. And of course, Jesus, the Christ, the king of the kingdom of heaven, is eventually crucified by his own people. Why? For simply saying who he actually was. Jesus told us, they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. He told us, you must hate father, mother, brother, sister to be my disciple. You must take up your cross and follow me. Paul writes, all those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. It's on virtually every page of scripture. Life is hard in and of itself. And following Jesus makes it harder. The older you get, the more you realize that. And God doesn't hide it. He puts it on every page of the book that he wrote in the Bible. Because he's honest. Because he loves us. He calls us to count the cost. 
But listen, what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that those trials, those temptations will expose unbelieving hearts. Trials and temptations will expose that the evident joy that someone may have had in Jesus before was not, as it says down there in verse 15, it was not honest. It was built on sand. So that, as Jesus taught, we saw a couple weeks ago, when the floods come and the streams come, the foundation gets exposed because they didn't dig down deep and be built on Christ. Take care then how you hear, friend. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is nothing more than sunshines and rainbows to you, then you won't be able to stand it when thunder and lightning come, and they do come. But you should also know, friend, you should also know that Jesus doesn't stand outside of the lightning and the thunder and tell you to love him. Not only has God been honest about us in his word, he willingly entered into the storms himself. He willingly entered into it himself. He calls for a faith that knows what trials and temptations are. Experientially, so comforting to me that I can look across to someone that's weeping over the loss of their child and said, my God knows what it's like to lose a son. He entered into it. So what he's calling us to 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 persevere through trials and tribulations. He gives the strength to endure it, but also he knows what it's like. Who are you and who are you becoming? Some will reject Jesus outright. Some will receive him joyfully when the sun is up, only to reject him when the clouds come. Then there's a third person, verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Now, I can't think of a verse that more accurately describes or hits home closer than this verse. It is not too much to say, guys, that we live in the most economically prosperous land in the history of the world. Consequently, we are surrounded by more opportunities for pleasure than ever before which results in more cares than ever before, be they job or relationship related. Guys, this verse is our cultural moment. Now, to be clear, it is a temptation for every culture in every moment, but it is especially our moment. And what's ironic about it is, even though we have more prosperity than our parents have or any other generation throughout eternity has had, what's interesting about it is, is we still feel this need, don't we? I do. I still feel this need to build more and more wealth so as to get to stability. And what's interesting, isn't it? When we get to that level of stability, we don't think it's enough. We need to get more. And on and on and on and on the slavery goes. And meanwhile, we carry around these so-called phones that are like appendages to our bodies. And at them, on those phones, they are having every pleasure that we can ever imagine is on them. That we can get like that. The author Neil Postman wrote about our moment in 1985. It was a great book to read. He says, quote, If there is a statue of a hog butcher, butcher somewhere in Chicago, then it stands as a reminder of the time when America was railroads, cattle, steel mills, mills, and entrepreneurial adventures. If there is no such statue, there ought to be, just as there is a statue of a Minuteman to recall the age of Boston, as the Statue of Liberty recalls the age of New York. Today, we must look to the city of Las Vegas, Nevada, as a metaphor of our national character and aspiration. Its symbol, a 30-foot-high cardboard picture of a slot machine and a chorus girl. For Las Vegas is a city entirely devoted to the idea of entertainment. And as such proclaims the spirit of a culture in which all public discourse increasingly takes the form of entertainment. Our politics, religion, news, athletics, education, and commerce have been transformed into happy adjuncts of show business largely without protest or even much popular notice. The result is that we are a people on the verge of amusing ourselves to death. Friends, did you know that Netflix sees your time of sleeping as a possible emerging market to penetrate? We wonder why we are hitting record levels of loneliness and depression and anxiety and anger. We've been bred to believe that we can have a customizable world that adjusts to our every personalized wish. And this, friends, might explain why we get so angry when somebody cuts us off on the road. 
It doesn't fit our customizable world. that We've been bred to believe is ours, that we deserve. Maybe this explains why the death of Kobe Bryant hits us so hard. Wakes us up. We've surrounded ourselves with so many personal riches and cares and pleasures that we didn't stop to notice that we are all heading towards that reality of death. Some sooner than expected. Some of us are so devoted to our work, to our vacations, to our material goods, our experiences that we've never slowed down long enough to consider that they may be actually killing us. Never slowed down long enough to ask, who am I? Who am I becoming as a result of these desires? How am I hearing? What am I listening to? How is it affecting me? Friends, there are far too many people that sit in churches 32, 33 Sundays out of the year, maybe read their Bibles from time to time, and yet never mature because they're dead. For all the prior soil on the rock had no moisture to cultivate roots to bring about fruit and it gets burned off. For folks in this third category, they may have roots into the soil, but because they don't care how they hear, they listen to the throngs of other voices, not regularly the voice of Jesus and turning and following him, and they go along like everybody else. And as a result, when they do hear the voice of Jesus, it gets choked out. Their hearts are likened to a full cup of water where you try to pour water into the full cup of water and it never gets in. It just keeps spilling out because there's no room in it because your heart is already full of other cares and pleasures. It never makes it down deep into the cup. And see, what's also dangerous about this is where the second soul has this clear moment of trial or temptation where it's too much and they walk away from Jesus. These people in this third category, they may never really appear to walk away at all. They may never know until it's too late. Degree by degree, they fade. And eventually, as Jesus says in verse 18, whatever life-giving word of Christ they do have, or maybe they did have, even that gets taken away. This explains, by the way, why some people, you know, maybe at 20, 21, 22, 23, they're following Jesus, going to church, reading their Bibles, trying to make disciples, and at 78, they're not even interested in going to Jesus and meeting with his people at all, reading his word at all, but they still call themselves Christians. Hebrews 5, 12 to 13 says, For those by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Friends, I shudder to think about how many of these people sit in church pews and maybe even listen to gospel-believing, uh, go to gospel-believing churches, and yet they choke on the word. As is illustrated by their not repenting and believing and following and obeying, but just giving in to all of their cares, their wishes, their pleasures, their riches. And at the end of their life, Jesus says, Matthew seven twenty three, I never knew you. Because you heard, but the cares, the riches of this life choked out when you heard. Who are you? Who are you becoming? Hear the word, take care how you hear. Finally, the fourth soil, the good soil. Verse 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word of God, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Six things Jesus just said there. Did you catch them? Hear the word of God. They hear it. What are these people like? They hear the word of God. They hold it fast. You could translate that word captive there. They're captive to the word of God, which is to say they will love it. They treasure it. They know they need it. They want it. They come to it. They try to follow it by grace. They fail a lot, but they still try to get inside of it. They hold it fast. Third, an honest heart. In other words, it's down in the heart. They want to do this right. It's not fake. A good heart. They bear fruit. In other words, they're living in light of it. You can see there it is. There it is. There it is. There it is. You can see they love Jesus. And they do it with patience. It's the sixth thing. In other words, they play the long game. They play the long game. Following Jesus. These are the ones that Jesus says down there. Look at verse 21. Are my mother and my brothers. They're in the family of God. Those who hear the word of God. Don't lose sight of this. Those who hear it. And then what does it say? Verse 21. And do it. There's the fruit. You can see it out there. Whatever it means to have fruit. All the calls to obedience. 
So here's an important question. Don't lose sight of this question. We kind of already answered it, but I want us to take a look at it here in the text. How does this come about? How does this fourth fruit, the bear's fruit, how does it come about? How does it work? How do you get a heart like this? Because, right, the temptation is you guys walk out of here and go, man, I don't want to be in those first three, so I better pull my bootstraps up this week, work really hard, and bear some fruit. Does that work in farming? The answer should be no, right? No, it doesn't work. You can't pull seeds up, make them start growing stuff, right? Making sure y'all are with me. Salvation, friends, and sanctification is all grace. It's all grace. It's right there in verse 10. Did you see it? Look back at verse 10. Jesus speaking to his disciples. To you it has been, what's the word? Circle that word. Given. To know. Right? Right? The way I always describe the word no in the Bible when it's used like this is Adam knew his wife and they had a baby. Right? You with me? Okay, kids in the room, y'all explain that to them later if you want. All right, if they're ready for it. But nevertheless, that's what no means. Given, given, given to know, given to treasure, given to enjoy, given, it's given, it's given. So therefore, all of those problems, start, start pulling those in, right? Philippians 1, right? God brings to completion all that he has begun. He finishes it off. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. John 6, no one can steal you out of his hand. God is too powerful for everything. He gives it to you to know nobody can take you away. Satan included, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Nobody loses salvation. That would imply that God is too weak. How does this happen? All by grace. To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. It's been given. Paul explains this so clearly in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 10. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, as the word teaches, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us. How? Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So when you're sitting here going, why does the lost guy not get it? Why does the saved guy get it? Spirit. God grants it by grace. Gives it to you. Rejoice, beloved. If you have that gift, rejoice. I didn't do anything to deserve this. Nothing. God gave it to me to see, to see, to treasure, to know. And so what the disciples had in the person of Jesus, we who are in Christ have now in his spirit. For those for whom it has been given, it's yours, beloved. If you have received the truth of the gospel and you find joy in it, treasure it, you desire to follow it, God gave that to you as a gift so that you would know him and enjoy him. So for those for whom the Lord has graced to reveal the mysteries of the word, God has given us ears to hear, eyes to hear. So we hear the word, we hear it, we hear it. And then we ask God to give us grace to see it, to treasure it, to enjoy it. And we praise God that he did this, all of it. Salvation is 100% grace from 100% of God. Sanctification works the same way. Do we have the responsibility to repent, to believe and live in light of it? Yes. How does that work? I don't know. I don't know. You need pastors that tell you that from time to time. God graces it. Why? He just his free grace to give it to people. And then we have the responsibility to repent and believe and live in light of it. How does that work? I don't know. But the Bible says both. But this much I do know. Some of you may be going, well, Nathan, how can I get that? What do I need to do? If God does it, well, this much I do know. Here you go. I'll give you this. If we say, this is James, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he 
is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us all from unrighteousness. In other words, if you desire ears to hear, eyes to see, if you want the word to be planted deep in your heart so that you might bear much root, to be saved and live in light of it, then don't plead your work. Don't say, then I'm going to read my Bible every week, every day this week. Amen. Do that. But don't trust you doing that. Trust God through you in that work. Plead his grace. Plead his mercy. Confess your sin. Confess your guilt. Plead the work of Christ and he will forgive you. He will sanctify you. He will give you ears to hear. He will give you eyes to see. To grow up into that salvation. And it's going to take some time. Just be patient, right? God is not an iPhone where you just touch it and get everything you want. Right then. Right? He is really, really sometimes frustratingly patient with us. Thank God he is. Amen. I'm almost done. Some of you friends are stuck in who you are and where you're going. That may be a series of bad choices. That may be due to sheer laziness or neglect of the word. So I just want to call you to hear the word of the Lord, beloved. Repent of idolatry. To plead the grace of Christ. To hear the word. Taking care how you hear it. In other words, surround yourself with truthful teaching. And be attentive to what Jesus is saying. Trust the Spirit to sow the truth in your soul in order that you would not only hear the word, but you do the word. Again, verse 21, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word and do it. It's not enough to hear. You've got to pay careful attention to how you hear. And by the grace of God, working through the Spirit of God, working in our hearts to apply the word of God, we might then bear much fruit. So I'm going to close with this. Verses 16 to 18. This passage seems like it's sort of strangely inserted, but it's not. Jesus says, right after explaining those four soils, he says, no one after a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand up so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. So here's what Jesus is saying. He says, if Christ is in you, you don't hide it. If you've been graced to know, given to know, you don't hide it. The way that you know that you're in Christ is you're showing it as people come into your life. That's the word there. As they come in, light of Christ comes out. Through trials, through tribulations, through sufferings and persecutions, and even our own failures. The one that truly looks to the grace and mercy of Christ, they will persevere to the end. God's got you. They will be known because nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest. That's what he says. It's going to come out. You guys remember back in Luke 2, verse 35, Simeon, you remember baby Jesus coming there? He's got him, and he says to Mama Mary, right? And he says to her, Luke 2, 35, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed in him. In other words, you look to see who the real Jesus is, Not the progressive Jesus, not the conservative Jesus, not the left or right Jesus, not the Jesus you want for yourself. No, the real biblical Jesus. You look at him, you match your life up in light of him. Not that you get it right all the time, but your life loves him, treasures him, is trying to follow him. He then finds you out. Your life gets defined by him. That's what Simeon said of Jesus. Look at Jesus, you figure out where you're at. If you have light or you have darkness. And so, what Jesus says there. In verse 18, those that don't have the light of Christ in them, what they do have will be taken away. In other words, in time, it'll be, it'll be clear they never actually were in. But those that have it are in Christ. And they shine the light of Christ all the time. They don't attempt to hide it. And so the way that you know where you are in these four soils is by taking a look at the fruit and tracking it back to the root. Does it it come by your abiding in Christ? And if it does, that's all grace. Requires your effort. Grace-driven effort. Evaluating fruit. We can discern where we're at. And let me encourage you, as you do this work, invite others, invite other gospel-believing Christians into your life to help you evaluate this fruit. We're bad, bad fruit inspectors on our own. Right, we need other people. That's why God gave us the church, to help us. Right, Invite them. Don't just sort of hope they do. Invite them. Right, 
right? Invite him. Dimitri, would you look into my life? I'm worried about this. Would you, would you speak into that? What do you see? Ask them and have the grace to listen and take care how you hear what they say. But as you do that, this is for all my people. Catherine loves to remind me of these people, and she's right to do that. There's some people that are going to walk out of here, you're going to be navel-gazing all week. Don't do that. Don't just stare at yourself. You have to stare at Jesus. When you evaluate yourself, you have to, 2 Corinthians 13 says, we must examine ourselves in light of the Lord's Supper. We have to examine ourselves, but look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Invite other people around, and we're going to help you get home to heaven. That's my job description. I love you. I thank God for you. I thank God for this church. I thank God for who we are and who we are becoming. And if you're not a Christian and you realize you need to follow Jesus today, that you're in one of those prior three souls, you come and talk to me. Talk to somebody else. But thank God for the grace of Christ that gives us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might enjoy the mysteries of the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the word. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. We plead, please give us ears to hear, eyes to hear. That we might live and bear much fruit, treasuring you, living in light of you. And where we get it wrong, God, give us grace to keep going. When trials and tribulations come, give us grace to keep going. Surround us with people that will love us enough to speak the truth into our lives. And God, may we get home to heaven and stare into your face and say, it was only because of you. You did it. Thank you. We bow at your feet. Amen.